And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. If you get your Bibles and grab this, thank you, and turn to Romans chapter 8. We've been doing kind of the jig in Romans. We spent about four weeks on 28 through 30, then did 31 and 32, and then backed up to 21 and, or 31 and 32. And so we're moving on to 33 and 34 this morning. And I'm going to be out next week. We'll be in Guatemala. And I, nobody reminded me. I forgot to wear my shirt. I was going to wear my T-shirt this morning. I didn't. Huh? You know me. Where's Romans? It's after Acts, isn't it? There we go. Between Genesis and Revelation. Between Genesis. Thank you much. I appreciate that. Yeah. Okay. Romans uh, chapter 8. We're just going to read a couple of verses, verses 33 and 34. What I was going to say was, next week since I'm out, it's happened in the past. Tyler doesn't mind. I mean, he actually likes preaching expositorily. And I'm sure when he's a pastor one day, it's exactly what he's going to do. And so he just, he takes what comes next. That hasn't been fun. It hasn't been advantageous. He's gotten some passages that I just happen to be out when they're, they're just tough passages or whatever, you know. Well, next week, folks, he gets 35 through 39. I mean, this is, this is the pinnacle of the book, well, this and the end of chapter 11 are, are the pinnacle of Romans. So, Tyler, God bless you, brother. You better do good. <laughs> All right, if you would just stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word, we'll begin in verse 33. And Paul writes, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the blessing of Jesus. Uh, we're looking at some of that blessing this morning and, and why it is that uh, we can, how we can handle guilt, Father. And it's because, it's all because of what Jesus has done. Father, on our behalf. So give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us hearts to understand this truth, Father, and speak your word to us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I know I've used this illustration before because we've talked about guilt before, but it, 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 I like it. Some years ago, a cartoon pictured a, a psychologist talking to a patient. He said, Mr. Figby, I think I can explain your feelings of guilt. You're guilty. That's easy enough, right? Now, we may chuckle at the cartoon, but it hits a nerve. Before God, we're all guilty of violating His two great commandments, which simply sum up all of His other commandments. We have all failed to, live, to love God with our entire being. And what's worse, we've even deliberately shoved him to the side and replaced him with things as our God. Too easy to do in our culture. And because we're selfish, we have failed to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And so we all have true moral guilt before the holy God of the universe. So how do you deal with your guilt? Many suppress it or deny it. 
Others try to excuse their guilt by thinking, well, I have my faults, but I'm basically a good person. I mean, I've never hurt anybody deliberately. But however we may try to get rid of our guilty feelings, there is still this stubborn fact that we stand truly guilty of sin before God who knows every wrong thought, word, or deed that we've ever done. Now, God's answer for guilt, of course, is the cross of Jesus Christ, where He bore the punishment that we deserve. As God in human flesh, His sacrifice satisfied God's holy wrath against our sin so that God could be both the just and the justifier of Him who has faith in Jesus Christ. That's Romans 3.25. Because He paid our debt... Paul proclaimed in Romans 8.1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But even though Paul has made this wonderful truth crystal clear, he knew that guilt can be a stubborn, nagging problem even for believers. The Swiss commentator Frederick Goddard, he suggests that as Paul wrote these verses, he may have been remembering the cries of the believers that he had dragged out of their homes and thrown into prison when he was persecuting the church. Perhaps he could hear Stephen, still see Stephen just before he died with his head bloodied from the stoning, crying out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Now, whether Paul was thinking of those shameful events from his past or not, um, he knew that even those who have trusted in Christ for salvation, they often have to wrestle with guilt, whether from distant or recent sins. Now, guilty Christians, they're not joyous, joyous Christians. They cannot enjoy close fellowship with the Savior. They cannot be bold in witness. They cannot confidently disciple others. They usually end up living as hypocrites, putting up a front in fear that the truth about their sin will be exposed. And so he applies the benefits of the gospel that he's just summed up, summed up in verses 29 and 30. And Paul asks two parallel questions that we're going to be focusing on. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And who is to condemn now, in answering those questions, he doesn't tell us anything that he hasn't already said, but he wants to hammer home God's answer to guilt one more time so that we'll know how to win the battle when guilt attacks, and it will. Now, God's answer to guilt is that he justifies his elect through Christ's mediation on our behalf. Now, first, uh, I want us to look at uh, who charges us with guilt. So our first major point here is the world, the devil, and our consciences seek to condemn us with guilt. So A, let's take a look at the world. The world charges us of being guilty of hypocrisy, intolerance, self-righteousness, and many other things. All of us have heard unbelievers complain, well, the church is just full of hypocrites. Well, yeah, most organizations are but here's the real question. What are you going to do with the claims of Christ? We're flawed. We know that. Christ is not. But we're all prone to put on a false front so that people don't see who we really are. Sometimes we may not deliberately deceive others, but at the same time, we don't correct their misconceptions about us. Oh, pastor, you're such a man of prayer. 
I should correct you immediately by saying, I struggle, and sometimes I'm not faithful in prayer as I should be. If I don't tell you that, I'm being a hypocrite. I'm accepting praise that I am not due. Unbelievers who frequently accuse us uh, they, they, they frequently accuse us of intolerance and self-righteousness. We're closed-minded. We're judgmental. We think that we're right and everyone else is wrong. I mean, after all, we say that our way is the only way to heaven. Now, often, of course, these charges, they're merely a smokescreen so that the unbeliever can simply dodge the truth. But sometimes the charge is true, and inwardly we wince with a little bit of guilt. Well, B, the devil charges us as guilty when we fall short of God's holiness. Remember God, Peter says through God who said in the Old Testament, be holy because I'm holy. Well, Satan means adversary, the adversary. Devil literally means one who throws things against you, not at you, but against you. It's to come against you. In Revelation 12.10, he is called the accuser of the brethren, who accuses them before our God night and day. Job 1 and 2 gives us an example. This is where Satan accuses Job before the Lord of being righteous only so that he can enjoy God's blessing and protection. There's another example in Zechariah 3 verse 1. It reads, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Now it goes on to say that Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. Why is that? It's because he was guilty as charged. Now, there's, de there's debate over whether or not Satan can interject accusatory or evil thoughts into our minds or whether these generate within ourselves. It seems to me that his role as accuser, it implies that somehow he is able to remind us of our guilt. Sometimes you just can't shake off those feelings after you have repented and confessed the sin to the Lord. Now, at such times, it's not the Holy Spirit convicting you if you have responded to His conviction by repentance. Rather, you're under attack from the accuser of the brethren, and you need to know how to put him to flight. We'll see our consciences. They charge us with guilt when we know that we have sinned. Someone has called the conscience a false alarm, F-A-U-L-T-S. Uh, it goes off to let us know our faults. The conscience by itself is not a very, very reliable guide. Sometimes it is overly sensitive. Some with a weak conscience feel guilty over the things that the Bible doesn't even consider a sin. And it causes false guilt. Or sometimes a believer agonizes over something that is a sin, but he blows it way out of proportion. Then you go to the other end of the spectrum and you have some who are calloused, insensitive, or they even have seared consciences. This person feels no guilt, even though he is disobeying the clear commands of God's Word. Now, in some cases, such people are merely ignorant of God's commands. For example, I've known professing Christians who are engaging in sexual relations outside of marriage, but they feel no twinge of guilt. Their consciences are insensitive or untrained. 
The Bible teaches that it's important to maintain a good conscience before the Lord. If the Bible calls something a sin, so should we. But if the Bible call, it doesn't, it does not call it a sin, we don't need to either. But even mature believers who have biblically sensitive consciences will have times when their conscience says, you're guilty, you sinned. Maybe we did something that we know to be wrong or we didn't do something that we know to be right. How do we answer these charges? This is the second major point this morning. After confession, which is the first thing we do, you answer charges of condemnation with God's promise to justify His elect through Christ's mediation on your behalf. To correct some common errors, I begin with a point that actually comes from other Scripture. And then we'll look at three lines of defense that Paul gives us. A, if you are truly guilty... Confess your sin and turn from it. That's the starting point. Now, some argue that since God has forgiven all our sins and removed our guilt at the cross, that we should never feel guilty. It's a done deal, so we should just shrug it off and move on. I believe that teaching is a little out of balance. It's true that our eternal standing before God is secure through the blood of Christ. But at the same time, if we love the Savior who gave Himself for us on the cross, when we grieve Him by sinning, we should feel grief that prompts us to confess our sin, to ask His forgiveness, and to turn from our sin. It's not a matter of our standing before God, but it is a matter of our relationship with Him. For example, if I sin against my wife, Debbie, She's sitting back there so innocent on the pew. If I sin against her, I'm still her husband. She's not going to disown me. All right? Uh, but my sin, it has strained our relationship. I need to confess my sin. I need to ask her forgiveness and seek to restore that relationship. It's the same with the Heavenly Father. Although we never, He would never disown me as a blood-bought son, if I sin, I need to be restored in my relationship with Him. I need to be forgiven relationally. I need my conscience to be cleansed by the blood of Christ. Now that takes place when I repent, confess my sin, and ask His forgiveness. Now, we need to be careful. Even as believers, we're prone to respond to our guilt by blaming others. Man, that goes a long way back, all the way to Genesis 3. <laughs> by blaming others or by denying, excusing or covering up our sin. One of the most common marital problems to overcome is for a couple to stop blaming each other or excusing their own sins and for each of them to confess his or her sins and to ask forgiveness from their mate. It's also one of the most common mistakes that Christian parents make. They don't humble themselves and ask forgiveness from their children when they have wronged them. Now, if you don't do that, your kids are going to see your hypocrisy, and it's actually going to turn them away from the faith. Teach them verbally and by your example that when we sin as believers, we ask God's forgiveness, and we ask forgiveness from the one that we sinned against. Also, if you sin against an unbeliever, you're going to be prone to cover it up and ignore it so that they won't think bad of you or your Savior, our Savior. But if you don't own up to your sin, 
he's going to rightly think that you're a hypocrite. When you as a Christian sin against an unbeliever, go to him. Acknowledge your sin. Humbly ask his forgiveness. Don't try to use the occasion to witness to the person. Just confess your sin and make restitution if it's appropriate. That will be adequate. That will be an adequate witness. Now, this point is actually from other scriptures and, and doesn't need a lot of defense because it's all over the place. Our in our text, Paul sets forth three answers to the charges of guilt and condemnation. So B, answer charges of condemnation with the fact of God's sovereign election. Look at the first question. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Why does he say that? Why does he say it like that? Why, why didn't he say, who will bring a charge against believers in Christ? Why does he bring up election? Paul emphasizes election because when you're feeling guilty over your sin, you're prone to doubt your faith in Christ. Maybe I'm not a believer. How could a believer do what I just did? If your salvation rests on your faith and your choice of Christ, that it, it's really going to get shaky when you sin. If the accuser can get you to focus on your feeble faith, boy, it's going to be easy for him to condemn you. Now, by God's elect, uh, that means that the root cause of your salvation is that God chose you. Yes, you chose to believe in Christ, but the reason that you did so is that He first chose you. If He had not done so, you would have happily gone on in your sin. Election doesn't mean, as many try to explain it away, that God foresaw that you would believe and chose you on that basis. If that were so, then that would not be according to grace, but according to something good in you, namely your faith. Your faith would be a work that, that you originated and could take credit for, and we know that's not true. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Knowing that you are saved because God first chose you in spite of your sin, that is essential in battling guilt. It means that no one can produce new evidence to get God to change His mind and disown you. And that's because He chose you before the foundation of the world, knowing all about the sins that you would commit both before and after your salvation. But maybe you're wondering, how can I know that I'm elect? Maybe my sins show that I'm not one of the elect. Well, it's true. A lifestyle of disobedience and sin, that should make you question whether your calling is calling an election are sure. 1 John 2, 3 and 4, John says, By this we know that we have come to know Him, meaning Christ, if we keep His commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. John is describing a habitually disobedient way of life. God's elect cannot be content living in sin. Ask yourself these questions. Has God changed my heart? Has He shown me my sin and guilt and my desperate need for the Savior so that I have abandoned all trust in my own good works to save me? Has He given me faith to believe in Christ as my only hope for heaven? 
has He given me a love for Him and for His Word and a hatred of sin? Am I growing in conformity to Christ? Now, while we all have room to grow in these things, this should be the direction of our lives if we are one of God's elect. That's clear from Scripture. We'll see. Answer charges of condemnation with God's promise to justify the ungodly by grace alone, through faith alone. Paul doesn't mention here that we are justified by faith. Rather, in answer to the charges against God's elect, he emphasizes God's action in 33b. It is God who justifies. Now, to learn how God justifies us, we've got to go back to chapters 3 and 4. This is where Paul shows that we are justified by faith apart from works. Romans 4 5 says, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Now, Paul's argument in 8.33, it's, it, it's using legal language. God alone is the supreme and final judge of the universe. Guess what? If He condemns you, you're eternally condemned. But if He acquits you, <laughs> you're eternally acquitted. So it's essential to make sure, as verse 31 says, that God is for you. Remember, if God is for us, who can be against us? No one can go above God's head to change his decision to justify the sinner who has faith in Jesus. If God has justified you, you're justified. He's the supreme court of all supreme courts. Now, also, as we've seen, there's nothing meritorious in us to deserve being justified. God justifies who? The ungodly, not pretty good people. He justifies the ungodly. We are truly guilty and deserve to be condemned. But Jesus paid the penalty that we deserved. Now, the cause of our faith that justifies us was not because we were brilliant enough to figure it out on our own or because even we had an inclination toward God. Rather, our justification is rooted in God's sovereign election. Because He justified us and chose us, we can answer any charge against us. But maybe the enemy keeps hounding us. He keeps pointing that accusing finger saying, you're not a Christian. You're condemned. So Paul gives one more decisive answer to guilt. So D, answer charges of condemnation with Christ's effectiveness and sufficiency as your mediator. This is verse 34b. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Verse 34 gives the theological reason why God can justify sinners, namely the work of Christ as Savior and mediator. Paul mentions four aspects of Christ's mediation on our behalf. Number one, Christ Jesus died for our sins. Paul doesn't add for our sins here. He's already covered that in chapters 3, 5, and 8. He states only that Christ died and was raised, and that puts the focus on Him. There's no security, there's no defense against guilt when your focus is on yourself or even on your faith. Your focus must be on God who has chosen you and justified you and on Christ who died and was raised bodily from the dead. 
We, say that we see the same emphasis on God's role in salvation in that passage in Zechariah 3. This is where Satan accuses Joshua, who was guilty. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this, referring to Joshua, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Paul's point in verse 34 is that it would be absurd for Jesus, who came to earth to be the sacrifice uh, for the sins of God's elect, to condemn the very ones that he died for. So when the enemy accuses you, point to the cross. Revelation 12, 11, it says, And they overcame him, Satan, because of the blood of the Lamb. Always look to Jesus. Number two, Christ Jesus was raised for our justification. Now here, Paul simply adds, yes, rather who was raised. But as he states back in Romans 4.25 that he was raised because of our justification. You see, Christ's death satisfied God's justice, and that provides the basis for our justification. But his resurrection... That was God's stamp of approval, showing that God accepted death as the payment for our sins. Paul staked everything in the Christian faith on the bodily resurrection of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, 17, kind of stating it negatively, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. So when you struggle with doubts, when you struggle with guilt because of your sin, go back to the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. It's a solid place to stand. Number three, Christ Jesus is now exalted to the right hand of God. Now the right hand of God, that's figurative language to say that Jesus is now far above all authority and all rule. He is over every power in heaven and on earth. This means that no one, not even Satan, can challenge Christ's rule or his decisions, including his decisions to pluck you as a brand from the burning in spite of your sin. You understand that that's all that Satan can throw at you is your sin? And if we understand that our sin's been covered for Christ, we don't need to bear, bear that guilt from Satan. Well, number four, Christ Jesus is interceding for us. John Calvin says that Paul adds this so that we're not going to be terrified by the majesty of Christ's absolute authority at the right hand of God. His purpose in that place of authority is not to condemn us, but to support us by His prayers, especially when we stumble and when we sin. There are two helpful examples of this in Scripture for us. The first is when Jesus tells Peter that Satan has asked permission to sift him like wheat. And then Jesus adds, but I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And you, once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. That's Christ praying for Peter. The other is Christ's wonderful prayer in John 17, uh, just before the cross. This is where he prays for his disciples, and he even prays for us. He prays for those who would come to Christ as a result of the apostles' work. And indirectly, that's us. For us, Jesus' throne at the right hand of the Father is not a throne of judgment, but rather a throne of grace. This is where we come to find grace and mercy in our time of need. But even when we feel too ashamed to pray because of our sin, because of our guilt, 
we can be assured that Jesus is praying for us. In John Bunyan's autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, he tells how he went through several years wrestling with his guilty conscience. He shares this helpful and practical insight. He says, But one day, as I was passing uh, in the field, and that too with some dashes in my conscience, he was feeling guilty, fearing lest yet all was not right, Suddenly, this sentence fell upon my soul, Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, as my righteousness, so that whatever, whatever, wherever I was or whatever I was a-doing, God could not say of me, He lacks my righteousness, for that was just before Him, referring to Christ. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Christ Jesus Himself, the same yesterday and today and forever. End quote. Bunyan saw that God's answer to guilt does not lie within us. It, it lies with God and Christ alone. If God has chosen you and justified you through the effective mediation of the crucified, risen, exalted, and praying Savior, then you can answer any charge against you. If God, the sovereign judge of the universe, has said, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, then you are not condemned if you belong to Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for just the power of your word. It speaks truth into our hearts, and as Jesus said, the truth will set us free. So I pray that there are believers here this morning that would be freed from guilt uh, that Satan places on us, that we place on ourselves, because we do fall so short of your glory. And Father, we ask that you'd forgive us of our sins and cleanse us, Father. Make us fit vessels to do your work. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're just going to have a, a song of invitation to give you a chance to respond. If you don't, we've been talking about Jesus this morning, and this really is a, a sermon for believers. Now, you may be rightly under the guilt of God. If you, do not, if you do not know God through His Son, Jesus Christ, that guilt, if any, that you're feeling, it's a deserved guilt. And it has to be reconciled. It has to be dealt with. God sent His Son some 2,000 years ago to live a sinless life so that He would be the fit and perfect sacrifice for the sin of mankind. You just have to trust Him. You ask God to forgive your sins. He's the one that you have sinned against. Ask God to forgive you and then trust what Jesus believe in Jesus and what He did on that cross some 2,000 years ago, taking on the guilt of that sin and the punishment, the wrath of God against that sin. That's what He did on the cross. And, and as we've already said, God, He justifies the ungodly. If you know you're ungodly this morning, you turn to Christ. You come to Him today. If you're a believer, I hope that you'll just take time to, to seek God concerning this. We all get this, this burden because of sin in our life. We, we have a desire because of the Spirit that's in us to do right and, and to be right, 
to be righteous, to be holy because God is holy. And we recognize immediately when we fall short, no matter what it is, the Spirit within us lets us know. That's okay. When that happens, respond to the Spirit. <laughs> Turn back to God. Ask Him to forgive you, to restore your relationship. He'll do it in a microsecond. What is it? First John 1 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to cleanse us from our, to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You do that. If the guilt remains after that, that's probably the accuser of the brethren. And man, he can, he can destroy you. Well, he can't really destroy you. You belong to God. But man, he can make your life miserable on the inside just because of your guilt. Don't do it. Understand what Christ has done. There, there's a verse that I really like in Hebrews, and I don't know the exact. I think it's 10, 10, 9, 10, 9, 9, 11. Is it 9-11? Anyway, it says something to this degree that Jesus uh, has sanctified us once and for all. Sanctified means, y'all know what that means? It means to be made holy. Jesus has made us holy once and for all. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You need to live in light of that fact if you're a believer today. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.